This audio recording is of our regular Sunday service, June 12th, 2016, at Restoration Road Church in Snohomish, Washington. The speaker is Brian Kirkman. More information can be found at restorationroadchurch.com. Good morning. I'm Brian Kirkman, one of the pastors here at Restoration Road Church. It is a great privilege and responsibility to continue preaching to you guys through the book of Genesis today. Now, we know that the book of Genesis is the book of beginnings. And here in chapter 14, God starts to show us another part of his overall plan through two very um, extraordinary events. We begin to see and learn about how God shows us that the the kings of the world are in such contrast to the king that he has appointed for us. First, there is this epic battle between nine kings, and they're all really bad. And then he introduces us to the ultra-mysterious King Melchizedek, who is also priest of God Most High. So, in this, we also start to see Abram, man of God, called according to his promise, called to inherit a land in Canaan. We start to see the impact that Abram is supposed to make on the world start to take place. And we also see Christ undeniably woven in to that story. So let's go ahead and look at Genesis 14. Read that together. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Elisar, Ketolamer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyam, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Admar, Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Ketolamer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. And in the fourteenth year, Ketolamer and the kings who were with him came and defeated Rephaim in Ashtaroth Karnaim, and Zuzim in Ham, the Emim in Sheva, Kiriathaim, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir, as far as Elperon on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to Enmishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the, the country of the Amalekites, and also the Amorites, who were dwelling in Hazazon Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out, and they joined battle in the valley of Siddim, with Ketolamer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goyim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariot, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of bitumen pits. And as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions, and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, with the Amor- uh, Mamre the Amorite brother of Eschol and Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. 
Then he brought back all the possessions, and also brought back his kinsmen Lot with his possessions, and the women and the people. After his return from the defeat of Ketelamer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Sheva, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted up my hand to the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of these men who went with me. Let Anner, Eshkel, and Mamre take their share. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this moment that we have. Together, joined, we ask that you would help us to understand your might, your, your power, and your care for your people. Lord, we thank you that we have much instruction here, and we pray that we would hear from you. Pray that these words would not be my own. And that everyone's hearts would be open to hear what you would have to say to them and how you would lead them from this text. God, we thank you that your spirit is able to open up the mysteries of your word and enlighten our eyes and our minds and especially our hearts, Lord. Pray that for those that are here who are closed off to your story right now, Lord, that you would open them up to hear the power of your might and the love that you provide, Lord. Pray that you would give us insight into your gospel story through this message this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. The Bible has many, many wars recorded. Some of these accounts are just that. They're accounts of what happened. But most of the biblical accounts of wars are much more. They're more than records. They show God fighting on behalf of his people. The Bible is God's reliable historical story of him redeeming a lost world, bringing it to relationship with himself. So it's not surprising to find stories where God is fighting for his people. Also, we see in Scripture that many times after there's a battle, and, there's, and God gives victory. He delivers His people from their enemies that he, he leads them into celebration. There's a worship celebration following that victory. Here in chapter 14 of Genesis, we see that pattern established. There's victory, and then God establishes worship in response to what He has done. We as believers would do well to adopt that pattern into our own lives. As we're going through hardship, as we see God working and creating victory for us, that we would respond in worship. 
Maybe this Sunday is your worship. You made it through the week. Maybe you'll, you'll have something tomorrow where you see God show up and do something amazing where you really needed him to act. So expect God to fight for you and build in worship and a response of thankfulness and worship to that. At this huge moment in history, God gives us a picture in Melchizedek of his son, Jesus Christ, who would become our king and our priest, who would offer his body and his blood as a sacrifice for us to pay for our sin. This is our spiritual victory. We are to look to God for victory, not just in the physical, but also in the spiritual. We know from chapter 12 that Abram was promised the land of Canaan, and we read this in chapter 12, verses 5 through 7. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, at the oak of Moreh, at the time the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So God called him and he promised him this special piece of real estate in Canaan. But you guys remember where Abram was called from? Where did he originate from? This is an important part of this whole story. It ties in. He was originally from Ur in Mesopotamia. Mesopotamia means between rivers. So you have the Euphrates River and the Tigris River in the Middle East. They flow from the Persian Gulf, or they flow down to the Persian Gulf. If you go up from there, it encompasses the land of Kuwait, Iraq, and up into Syria. This is where Abram was from. He was from one of the most southwest, or let's see, south uh, eastern cities down close to the Persian Gulf. That's where God called him out of. This was a land of idol worship. They were worshiping idols, false gods, and then God called him out of that land to go 800 miles away to Canaan where he would raise up descendants from Abram who would be worshipers of the one true God. We read in Genesis 11, 31 through 30, 32, that Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went out together from Ur of the Chaldeans in order to enter the land of Canaan. And they went as far as Haran and, and settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. So they traveled from this very southeastern part of Mesopotamia up to the very northeastern section in Haran. And then later, together with Sarai and Lot, they traveled down to Canaan. Where Abram originated was in that land of Ur, and it was filled with all these city-states. So Ur was just one of many different city-states. And these city-states had kings or rulers that would fight with one another. And when one king would defeat another king, they would subject them to their rule, but it wasn't tightly ruled. It wasn't like they were very involved in that kingdom, unless they had to be. They'd usually let them self-govern, but they had to pay tribute 
to the ruling king. They also had to provide military personnel, their armies. They had to fuel the army of the the, uh, ruling king or this so-called king of kings uh, that would rule over them. So then this king that was ruling over the other kingdoms would build his army and he'd conquer more kingdoms and acquire more resources. And all these lands would become somewhat involuntary allies. So now the nine kings here in the first part of Genesis 14, they're from the region that Abram came from. And they're all part of Kedolaomer's empire. That is until five of them rebel after 12 years. Sorry, just to, clarify, just to clarify, four of those kings are from where Abram is from. Five of them are very close to Canaan. So the four kings where uh, Abram came from, they, the, they kind of ruled the land that Abram originated from. And now you got these five kings rebelling after 12 years. The first king mentioned here is Amraphel. He's the king of Shinar. I'm not too certain why he's mentioned first here, but here are a few theories. Theory one is that Ur was very close to the land of Shinar or even in Shinar. So it's the land that Abram came out of to go to the promised land. It's the land out of all these kings that has the most personal connection to Abram and to his past. The second theory is that Shinar was typically the more dominant region or kingdom. Usually they ruled over the others, but in this case, at this time, Elam was ruling over all the kingdoms, but soon after, Shinar returned to that dominance and ruled over even Elam. The third theory is that Shinar is already a familiar and important place by the time we get to chapter 14 in Genesis. Back in Genesis 10 and 11, Shinar already got a couple of unhonorable mentions. First in chapter 10, we have the prideful Nimrod who built several cities of Shinar. And he was a prideful man. He built these cities out of ambition and because he wanted to rule them. So we see the start of what Shinar would be. Then in chapter 11, in Babel, one of those cities in Shinar, we see the people try to build this tower up to heaven in defiance of God. And God confuses their languages, and then he scatters them. Both of them are, so both uh, Shinar and Elam are important places at this point in the story, but they're also important later on because the Jews are later exiled into these lands. Now, in this case, Amraphel is, the, uh, the, is not the predominant. Like I said, Ketolaomer is the predominant king who's ruling over. Typically, Amraphel or Shinar is the ruling kingdom. You might think of Shinar as like the joker and Ketolaomer as penguin, usually the joker. He's the archvillain. But in this case, you've got penguin, in this episode, who is, happens to be the supervillain. So the Jews later exiled to the same land of Elam and Shinar. These lands become later on Babylonia and Persia. And today we know them as Iraq and Iran. Okay, so back 
to the battle scene. Let's read it again. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Ketolamer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of, king of Goyim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Birsha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is, Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Siddim, that is, the Salt Sea. Don't you just love how this section just gets right to the point? We've got a battle here. If you skip that short intro of In the Days Of, it almost sounds like a big fight promotion. Verse 1 talks about Team Ketolamer, or Penguin. In verse 2, it's talking about Sodom and Gomorrah, the opponent. In verse 3, it gets to the, the fight venue, the Valley of Siddim. It has an ominous ring to it, don't you think? I'm sure if someone, I'm sure someone would have already used it as a name of a fight venue if it hadn't have been so close to Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, after giving us a picture of the battle to take place, verses 4 through 6 flash back and give us the background and the buildup to this battle scene in Siddim. So verse 4. Twelve years they had served Kidolamer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. So Kidolamer had far-flung power. He ruled with oppression. He would conquer lands. He worked hard to maintain his rule. As the kingdoms that he ruled devised how they'd get out from under his control, he was devising how he could keep them ruled by, his fear, by fear and oppression. This is the way that the world works apart from God's rule. One king conquers another. There's oppression. The other king revolts, brings the other kingdom under their oppression, and back and forth. Now, it says in verse 4 that the five kings rebelled in the 13th year. But it wasn't until the 14th year that Kitalamer heads out to reconquer them and subject them to his rule again. I'm sure, a, a, ruling, I'm sure that ruling a huge kingdom is a busy job, but Kitalamer wanted to get back those subjects. He wanted to crush them and bring them back into subjection to him but it took time to do it right. They had to travel about 800 miles from Mesopotamia or that region over to the plains of Jordan where the five rebelling kings were at. It probably took them close to two to four months just to make the trip. And it required enormous amounts of food and water. After this long trip, we see in verses 4 through 7 that they attacked and conquered the land around the five rebelling kings who were on the east side of the Salt Sea in the plain of Jordan. Verse 5. In the fourteenth year, Kedolamer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtaroth Karnaim, the Zuzim in Ham, the Emim in Sheba Kiriathaim, and the Horites in the hill country of Seir, as far as Elparan, and the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to Enmeshpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites, 
and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazon Tamar. So, Hedelamer and the other three kings pretty much started at the northeast of the Dead Sea, or the Salt Sea, and they conquered kingdom after kingdom around the east side, around the southeast, the south side, and southwest all the way over to Egypt. And then they circled back. So they pretty much cut off all the land around the five rebelling kings. This put them in a great position. There was no place for them to run or get help. Canaan, where Abram was at, was never entered by Ketolamer and his forces. But they were separated from the Jordan Plain by the Salt Sea. So there's nothing left for these five rebelling kings to do except to stand and fight and then run like the Dickens. So we read in verse 8, Then the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and they joined battle in the valley of Siddim. And Ketolamer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goyim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of bitumen pits, that is tar, or asphalt. And as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. And then what happens? Verse 11, So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah, and all their provisions, and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions, and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew. So Abram knew that these invading armies were from Mesopotamia and that area, and that they were seriously dangerous dudes. He also knew that God had called him out of that land where these armies had arisen from. And now his nephew Lot was being taken back there. He's being kidnapped. This is a bad situation. It looks really bad to Abram. He's losing his nephew. Lot is being drugged back. And everything that Lot has acquired since being called out of Ur is being taken back with him. With the armies of Mesopotamia coming right up to the border of Canaan where Abram was at, and defeating the kings of the Jordan Plain, it was like Abram's past coming up in a very real way and threatening the, pro- the things that God had said, the promises God had given. But God is always in control. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. You see, God wanted those five kings to rebel. Their hearts were like water in his hands. He orchestrated it. He created this story of history for us. Five kings rebelling. He also wanted those four kings from Mesopotamia to come and crush the rebelling kingdoms. And he wanted those kings to come right up to Abram's doorstep and make their presence known. This is where God acts according to his promise on behalf of his people. It's like this David and Goliath type situation. There's not a lot of hope in it other than Abram has God on his side. Let's continue. In verse 13, 
Then one who had escaped and came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, brother of Eshcol and of Aner. These were the allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. This is a miraculous victory orchestrated perfectly by God for his glory. He brought the mightiest army or military alliance in the world 800 miles to kidnap Abram's nephew. God made that happen. Then God gives Abram uncharacteristic courage. I mean, just a couple of chapters ago, Abram was cowering before the Egyptians. Yet now he has this courage to take off after this huge army. That came from God. Also, he then defeats the army. God defeats the army using Abram's 318 men. This is like fishes and loaves. You know, God provides food for many people from fishes and loaves. When Jesus blessed the bread and the fish and spread it out, God takes this army of 318 and he uses them in a miraculous way to defeat this huge army. And the cherry on top of it all is that these kings pretty much loot all the land around Canaan. And then God just delivers it right into Abram's hands. Before we go on to the second half, the celebration of worship with Melchizedek, let's examine ourselves in light of what we read here in the first part. There are four things that we ought to see, or that I'd like us to see in Abram and to emulate ourselves. They all start with P so you can remember them. The first one is productive. Be productive. Before this all happened, Abram had 318 trained men born in his house. We are called to be Abram's children through the faith that we put in Christ and to follow his example of faith. At this point, remember, Sarai was barren. She had no children. And yet, their house was fruitful and multiplying. That was their life. That's what they were living. Was that, that they were living out that promise even though they couldn't see it realized through Sarai. So whether you're single or you're married, whether you have kids or you don't or you are a child, be productive in your life. The restored life is a productive giving life. Ephesians 4.28 instructs us to do honest work so that we might have something to share with others in need. The second P is pass on. If you have children or others in your house, be like Abram and take responsibility to pass it on to them. Teach them the faith that you have in Christ. Instill with them godly character. 
Obviously, Abram's family knew how to protect themselves and how to fight. But not just that. They also worked hard. Their, Their herds were growing. They were out doing things. They were also honoring God and learning how to worship God. Abram taught them how to obey and worship God. So if you're a father or a mother, teach and train your children in worship and obedience. And the same goes for other discipleship relationships. Our children and, our other, and these other disciples need to know that they are not their own. They belong to God. That they are to live their lives for His glory. But teaching is not enough. Be their example. Be their trainer. Teach them how to study God's Word and to grow deeper in their relationship with Him and their understanding of God's truth. And show them how to put it into practice. This is how Abram's family and his household operated. They understood God's truth. And, when, and you know that when they went out there into battle, they had a lot of character instilled in them, a lot of truth instilled in them, but they trusted that God was going with them because that's how they lived their lives around Abram. Also teach those that you're discipling, including your children, to find their satisfaction, to put their hope in God, to find full satisfaction in Him. We are to pass on the treasure that He has freely given to us our children, and to those that we're discipling. The third P is partner. Abram didn't do it alone. When he went to rescue Lot, he had dependable friends who were willing to put their lives on the line to go against this huge military alliance. It says here in verse 13 that these Amorite neighbors of Abram's were allies. Literally, they were in covenant with Abram. So Abram and his family were in covenant relationship with others. As Christians, we're members of Christ's body and united together by our, by our joining, being joined to Christ in covenant relationship with Him. So we should have a, a great connection with one another, be connected in our lives, supporting one another, but also consider how you're partnering with those outside of the church, with your neighbors, your coworkers. How's your relationship with your boss? Do you, are you nurturing those relationships to show God glory? These allies of Abram saw firsthand the blessing God promised in Genesis 12:3. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Think of those relationships, those partnerships that you have with others. Are you blessing others around you that don't know God yet? The fourth P, prepare. Don't wait for the trouble to come to get ready for the battle. It's too late. Ephesians 6.13 instructs us to prepare for the evil day. Ephesians 6.13, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. It doesn't say to get your armor on when the evil day comes. You need to be prepared for when that evil day comes. 
when that joker, the devil, tries to drag you or your nephew or your brother or sister in the Lord back into that land of idolatry where God has rescued you out of. Abram and his men had swords, and they knew how to use them, apparently very well. Our sword, according to Scripture, according, according to Ephesians 6, is the Word of God. Use your weapon. Know how to use your weapon. Read your Bible, meditate on it, and live your life by every word of it. When the evil day comes, and it will, put fear in your enemy. Put fear in him by using the word of God as your offensive weapon against him. When you respond with his attacks with faith, with the word of God, you will see victory. This brings us to our final section, the fifth P. Praise God for the victory he has won. Let's pick up the rest of our text in verse 17. After his return from the defeat of Ketolamer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shiva, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted up my hand to the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten, and the share of the men who went with me. Let Anner, Eshkol, and Mamre take their share. First, let me address the part about Sodom, and then we'll come back to Melchizedek. For some reason, God would not allow Abram to accept any of the goods that the king of Sodom was trying to offer him. We know that Sodom was an utterly wicked kingdom that God would, just, would destroy in a short time from this point. And that all those goods that God would not allow Abram to take, that God would just destroy them with the rest of Sodom. He also knows that he doesn't need those goods. Abram knows that God is the possessor of heaven and earth. Everything is his. Even the king of Sodom was his. Abram belonged to God. So he didn't need what the king offered, this king of Sodom. All he needed was what the king of Salem, Melchizedek, offered. Who is this Melchizedek? Read of him in verses 18, 19, and 20. You can read over and go, hmm, that's interesting. Not a lot there. And then you can study the rest of Scripture and read a lot in the Old Testament trying to find his name. It comes up just one other place. It's in a Psalm of David, about a thousand years after this point in time. 
Psalm 110, verse 4. It says, The Lord has sworn and will not change His mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That's it. But then we jump to the New Testament, to Hebrews 7, and it spends an entire chapter unpacking those three verses in Genesis 14 that we read, and the one verse in Psalm 110, and it shows the connection between Melchizedek and Jesus. It explains how Melchizedek was a foreshadow of Christ who was to come. First of all, Salem literally means peace. So Melchizedek is the king of peace. In in Isaiah, we're taught that Jesus has the title Prince of Peace. Second one is that there's no genealogy given for Melchizedek. This is really unusual, especially at this point in Scripture, for someone to show up on the scene that has no lineage at all. All the kings that we talked about before were already covered previously where they came from. But here Melchizedek just shows up. No genealogy. And Hebrews teaches us that Jesus came from God. He's eternal. He is God. He's eternal. He has no father and mother in his divine nature. Though he came in the flesh through the the Virgin Mary, in his divine nature, he has no beginning or end. So that's another similarity with Melchizedek. The third one is Melchizedek is a priest of God Most High. There's other priests appointed, but Melchizedek just shows up, and he's priest. It just says it right there. Until David comes back, comes back a thousand years later and says, and there's going to be another one after the same order, just like this. So we have Melchizedek as this kind of picture that there just be a priest. Just, it shows up. Now Jesus came from the line of David. There's no priest from the line of Judah from which David came. It was through the Levites that God appointed the priest, priestly office in Israel. So through that line, he has no connection to the priesthood. But he came as Melchizedek's order. He came as a new Melchizedek. So he could be both king and son of David, but also our priest. And like Christ, Melchizedek was greater than Abram. In Hebrews 7, it talks about how Melchizedek was greater than Abram. Two ways. One is that It says that Melchizedek blessed Abram, and the greater always blesses the lesser. The second point that it makes in Hebrews is that Abram gave a tenth of everything that he got to Melchizedek. This is a picture of his response for God winning the, the victory and conquering and providing all that plunder that he gave God a tenth of it, or he gave it to the priest that God had appointed. So God established his authority and who Christ was and that Christ really owns everything. That tenth was just a picture of everything that we owe to God, which is our complete being. Everything that we own, everything that we are, belongs to God. And Melchizedek was honored with a tenth of that. Jesus we honor with a portion of who we are, but really he owns all of us completely. So this awesome priest king 
who is very much like Christ, serves Abram a meal. He serves him a meal of bread and wine and blesses him. And Melchizedek makes it clear that God won the battle. He delivered Abram's enemies into his hand. So though Abram had a productive and fruitful life, and he passed on what he knew to his family and those that were connected to him, though he had wise partnerships and good relationships with his neighbors, though he was prepared for battle, he couldn't put his hope in those things. It doesn't matter how prepared you are or how ill-prepared you are, the victory belongs to God alone. There is no way for him to win without God delivering his enemies into his hand. He utterly needed God, and he had to step out in faith that God would be there fighting on his behalf. So that meal that Melchizedek served Abram sounds very much like the communion meal that Jesus served the disciples on the night he was betrayed and that we're about to take together. It's a reminder that while God can defeat the greatest armies of the world, we still need a priest. We need him to come and cleanse us, as a priest does, of our unrighteousness and give us real peace. Not just an absence of war or of oppression, but real peace in our soul. He is our high priest after the order of Melchizedek as well as the king of kings and the king over our life. He gave his life for us on the cross to take upon himself the punishment that we deserve for our sins. And as we take communion together, remember his body and his blood sacrificed for you. Remember that your ultimate victory was won by him dying on the cross. And also as you take communion today and sing songs in response to him, remember that pattern was established here. Right here in Genesis 14, that's the first time where we see God's people delivered and there being a service with communion or a pre-communion and praise to God because everything came from Him. Let's pray.